if you walk through an art gallery, if you're that way inclined, uh, I think probably maybe a few of us are, not all of us, but if you were to walk through an art gallery and to use to see a painting, you get an idea of, of what the artist is like. You get a, a, a picture of their interests or you know, the things that they love or the things that they're fearful of. And maybe more appropriate for us a lot is music. We're probably all interested in music. And it's the same thing with music. If you listen to a piece of music, you'll get an idea, an insight into the artist, into the musician. You'll get to understand, you know, you listen to the lyrics and you understand who it is that they love or who it is that they've fallen out of love with or who it is that they've fallen back in with love with after having fallen out of love with that person. You get an insight into who they are, their interests, their troubles, the things that excite them. And if you were to look at creation, we could do the same thing. If you think as you look at a picture, you get to understand the artist. If you listen to music, you get to understand the musician. As we look at creation, we get to understand something about the creator. Um, This tickles a particular fancy of mine, and you'll you'll know it does. But a year on Tuesday this week, a year ago, um, Tuesday this week, um, the James Webb Telescope reached its orbit. Don't worry if you don't know what I'm talking about. I'll I'll let you in. Uh, The James Webb Telescope is the most powerful telescope uh, that's been created. So you've heard of the Hubble Telescope, maybe, hopefully. Uh, This is uh, a lot more powerful than NASA and the European Space Agency sent this up into orbit. And a year ago on Tuesday, it reached its final orbit. And it's orbiting around the sun at the moment. And it's taken some incredible (coughs) photos uh, of what's out there. And it can see... Uh, 14 billion light years into deep space. That means nothing to probably all of us. Hey, Cam, welcome in. Uh, make yourself at home. 14 billion light years. So a light year, just to give you a bit of context, one light year is 6 trillion miles. Try to get that round your head. 6 trillion miles. So this telescope can see, I can't do the maths, but it can see 14 of those into deep space. Just to give you a bit of context, the sun is around 140 billion miles away. So one light year, six trillion miles. You can get a kind of flavor for how far into deep space it's able to see. And these are the kind of photos that we're seeing uh, come back. If you flick the first one on 400 miles, this is a photo of SMAX 0723. There's a nice funky Star Trek name. And what you can see, if you really look closely, is a lot of lights. Um, But those lights, those tiny clusters, each of them are galaxies. You think of our galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way. Um, so our solar system is one of about 4,000 solar systems in just our galaxy. And what you see there is thousands of galaxies. Each within them has got thousands of solar systems. And what they're saying is they pointed the telescope towards S Max 0723. And the scientists say it's a little bit like holding up a grain of dust against the sky. And that's what they can see. So you think of what else is out there. It's incredible, isn't it? And then here's another beautiful one. If you throw this up, Miles, the Carina Nebula. Isn't that stunning? That's a picture of a star being formed. <coughs> 8,000 light years away. Um, one of the, the scientists who's working with the James Webb Telescope, he was asked, um, like, how many galaxies do you think are out there? So when Hubble was sent out, you know, they had a, a rough idea of how many galaxies might be out there. James Webb is sent up and they've, um, they've increased that number by 10 times. 
like you think in a thousand years when we get the next, you know, all of these other powerful telescopes, where that number's going to go to. And this guy was asked, how many galaxies do you think are out there? And he just quite winsomely said back, a great number. They've got no idea, but look at that. Isn't that incredible? A star being formed and just all of the beauty that we can see in creation. And as we look at that and as we see its beauty and its majesty and the scope and the order and the form of creation, it gives us an insight about Christ, the creator. I wonder what it tells us. As we look at the beauty of creation there, what does it tell us about Christ, the creator? Just like music tells us something about the musician, art tells us something of the artist. What does creation tell us about Christ, the creator? Well, hold that thought and then let's listen to our passage from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. Can I just suggest just don't read it, just listen. Have your Bibles ready, but just listen to what we learn here about what these words reveal to us about Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. This is talking about Christ and it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what we understand from those verses. Here's what they teach us about Christ the Creator. But the supremacy of Christ assures us of his sufficiency. And so far in this beautiful letter, and I hope you've been enjoying it, so far Paul, the apostle who writes it with Timothy, has given us his greeting. He's given his initial thanksgivings in the first few verses, initial encouragements. In verse 4, we get this great reminder for God's people, you are in Christ, you're united to Christ. And that reality for God's people, that changes everything. And that's going to be a theme through this letter, your inness, your unity, your being united to Christ. That's so important for us to ground. He's been encouraging them and giving thanks for them. And if you remember the reason that Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to the church in Colossae because they're being infiltrated by false teachers. And these teachers are coming in to unsettle the believers and to discourage them. And so Paul writes to them to reassure them and to encourage them, and specifically to encourage them that Christ alone is enough. He wants them to to take that message home. Christ alone is enough. He's enough for salvation, and he is enough for them to endure in the struggles of life. And we might expect maybe at this point in the letter, after he's done his his, initial greetings, thanksgivings, encouraging them, we might expect him to really, let's go for it, let's deal with this issue of the false teachers. And to start giving them some practical advice for how you need to deal with the false teachers. Like, 
put someone on the door. Like put a big fella on the door to, to spot these guys coming in so you can deal with them. Or maybe run a, a doctrine class or a theology class so you can really find out who's, who's in Christ and who's isn't. We might expect them to get really practical with how to deal with the discouragement of these false teachers. Paul knows exactly what he's doing here. And he knows that the most effective remedy to encourage weak saints is to give them a picture of the supremacy of Christ. That's what they need. That word supremacy or supreme, so we read it here in our Bibles, verse 18, as preeminent. It's the same word as supreme or, or kind of supremacy. Uh, that word there means to be the chief, the first, or the greatest. And my dad has a famous recipe, some of you have enjoyed actually, called Chicken Supreme. He just made up that, that name himself because he believes in, in his mind that that meal is the best chicken meal that you can ever have. <coughs> and he's passed that uh, recipe down, to, well he's passed it on to Elizabeth and our family because I definitely wouldn't make a supreme dish at all. But it's true, it is probably the most uh, delicious chicken dish that you will have. Chicken Supreme he calls it because it is the greatest, the greatest chicken dish that you can have. And if you haven't tasted it, you know, maybe that doesn't work for you. But think about, think about how the court system works in our land. What is the greatest, the highest court in the UK? What's it called? Supreme. The Supreme Court. It's the highest. It has the most authority. It is the most powerful. That's what Supreme means. It's the picture of Christ that Paul is helping us to see. And let me just say this. We just read five verses and these five verses that we've just read from Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20, these are probably the most important verses when it comes to understanding who Christ is in the Bible. Like we believe all of this is the word of God to us. All of it is helpful and instructive. But these five verses are perhaps the most important verses when we want to understand who Christ is. And that is because the picture that is painted of the Lord Jesus Christ is so effective to bring assurance to even the weakest of believers. Usually I will get to application at the end of the sermon, but I'm just going to get in straight away. Because that is true, because these verses are so important, can I encourage you if you're a believer, like hold on to these. If you're that way inclined and if you can, memorize them. Think of how many songs we know off by heart. You can do that with this scripture. It's five verses. Memorize them. Commit them to memory. Do what you can to get these verses into your heart and into your head because these verses are the most helpful verses that you can have in your moment of weakness because they point us to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, we can't really see it in our Bibles because it's written in English, but because uh, this text, this letter was originally written in Greek, what we'd see if we read it in Greek is that these five verses are actually written as a song. It's a poem. It's a song the Colossians probably had heard of it before. And if you think about why we write songs or why we write poems, we write them to help us stop and think. And that's exactly what Paul wants to do here. He wants the church in Colossae. He wants us as we read this song to stop and think. And to stop and think specifically about Christ. And specifically about his greatness, his supremacy in order that we can be assured about his sufficiency. So if I explain what supremacy is, greatness, the, the greatest, the, the most authoritative, that's what, that's what supremacy means. 
Well, here's what sufficiency means. This isn't a word, but it makes sense. Sufficiency means enoughness, right? You know exactly what I mean, right? Enoughness. And Paul wants the Colossians to be convinced that Christ is enough. And he wants them to be convinced of that because that is the question that they are being persuaded to ask. Is he enough? Is Jesus Christ enough? That's what the false teachers are getting them to question. Is he really enough? And it's not just the Colossians that are having to ask that question. We ask that question. If we're honest with ourselves, we all face that question probably, probably every day. If you're not a Christian, you will or you have or you are facing that question right now. Maybe that's why you're here. Because you're asking the question, is the Lord Jesus Christ enough? Is he enough to satisfy me? Is he enough to give me life? But even if you are a Christian, and this letter, by the way, is written to those who are. If you are a Christian, you're asking the same question. We're confronted with that question every day. Is Christ enough? And Paul says, yes, he is. He absolutely is. He is absolutely sufficient. And we need to hear that. Christ is enough. In every struggle of our lives, Christ is enough. When we face the temptation to sin, Christ is enough. In the uncertainties of the future, Christ is enough. In the sorrow and the pain of loss, Christ is enough. In the struggle with addiction, Christ is enough. In the anxious thoughts, Christ is enough. In the face of death, Christ is enough. He's enough in life and he is enough in death. Christ alone is sufficient. One preacher puts like this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's saying you don't need to add anything to him for him to be enough. You can't add anything to Christ. He is enough on his own. And when we doubt that it's true and we doubt that Christ alone is enough, you know what we need? We need a vision of him in his greatness. We need a vision of Christ and his supremacy, which is what we have in this passage. Starting in verse 15, we see this. Firstly, Christ is supreme in his person. Listen, he is the image of the invisible God. This week uh, is a special week in our house. It's haircut week. Someone's already uh, done it already this afternoon. Haircut week means that me and Micah get a sharp cut. But it also means that people say to Micah, oh boy, don't you look like your dad? When he, we, we both get the same haircut, we do look exactly the same. Unfortunately for him, he's inherited some of my um, features and, and we look very similar, familiar. And in verse 15, Paul is making a connection between Christ and God. Now there's a, a, a familiar sound and phrase there. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember last week we were looking at Genesis 1 and we talked about how humanity is created in the image of God. Well, that isn't quite what Paul is saying, is he? He's not created in the image of God. Paul says he is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God because he is God. Paul is driving that point. Jesus Christ is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, Jesus Christ is God. And back in the Gospels, you get this conversation, you might know from John 15, Philip, the disciple, comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. Show us the Father and that's kind of sufficient for us. Like you're great, but, but we want a bit of the Father as well. And what does Jesus say to Philip? If you see me, 
You've seen the Father. I am enough. Jesus Christ is God. See, what Paul is doing here, he's, he's holding up a correct picture of who Christ is so that they can, they can see the false Christ as he's held up by the false teachers. Jesus is fully God. He was fully man. He is fully man. But he is also fully God. And Paul is saying that is who you worship. The one who is fully God and fully man. The one who is fully divine and fully human. The one who is nothing less than God the Father or God the Spirit. That is who you worship. He is supreme in his person. And secondly, he is supreme in creation. Look at the rest of verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. He is the firstborn of all creation. In uh, Roman thought, in Greek thought, as this would have been uh, read out, this, this revelation of Christ, uh, that he existed before creation, because that is really what Paul is saying here, that would have been revolutionary to them. Their belief was that creation was the result of many gods. But what Paul is teaching in these five verses is that it is the result of Jesus Christ, the one true God who pre-existed creation. He has always been. He is the first one. And that doesn't mean, as we read it, maybe we're thinking, well, that means he was the, the first one to be born. And actually, what it really means is that he is supreme in rank. That's literally what that word firstborn means, supreme in rank. And what Paul is saying is this, he outranks everything in the world. He's given us another picture of the supremacy of Christ. He is supreme in rank. And Paul is saying, whatever you think is great in this world, Jesus Christ is greater. He's better. So think about the, the context of the Colossians. Remember a few weeks ago, we explained that this used to be a city that thrived, that had a great economy. And now they become this forgotten city. And surely that would have played on, on the people who live there. But whatever they think it is to be great, Jesus is greater. Influence, he's greater. Wealth, he's greater. Comfort, he's greater. Sex, he's greater. Folks, your, your spouse, I know this might be hard to believe, but Jesus Christ is greater. The spouse that you dream of, Jesus Christ is greater. The city that we love, he's greater. Liberty Church. He's even greater than our church, the Carina Nebula. He's greater. You know why? Because in verse 16, he created it all. By him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created it all. Seven times in these five verses, Paul says, all. He's driving a point here. All things were created by Christ. All things were created for Christ and all things were created through Christ. He is responsible for it all. Whether things in heaven or things on earth, whether things we can see or things we can't see. And listen to this in the middle of verse 16. That includes the powers and the authorities and the kingdoms of darkness. Jesus Christ is supreme over them all. And that means that if we are in him, if we are united to Christ, we have nothing to fear. And as if verse 16 wasn't enough, we get an and in verse 17. Paul isn't quite done here. Verse 17, and he is above all things and in him all things hold together. He's supreme in creation and he's supreme in control. 
Christ is in control of all things. One writer puts it like this. Christ keeps the cosmos from going into chaos. That's great, isn't it? Christ keeps the cosmos from going into chaos. Why isn't human existence descending into chaos, folks? Why didn't COVID finish us off? Why are we perfectly spinning on our axis as a planet at the perfect distance from the sun, which burns at the perfect temperature so we don't burn up into a crisp? Why? Because Christ is holding it all together. He's in control. That means we don't have to worry. The prevailing environment that we live in, folks, as human beings, particularly in the Western world, is anxiety. It is to worry. It is to push aside that reality that Christ is in control and instead to to default to anxiety. I was struggling uh, through a a difficult issue this week and I sat in front of a a friend of mine who, who loves me and loves Jesus and he was just helping me walk through this issue and he asked me to explain to him what was going on. So I unpacked him. For me, it was, it was a practical issue, just something I had to get sorted out, an issue I had to work through a conversation that I needed to have. And he knows me and he, he knows the help that I really need. And he just looked at me and said, Neil, what's going on in your heart? And I came to a moment of honesty and I said, I'm anxious. I just feel like I, I'm not in control. I can't sort this thing out. I'm anxious. And he lovingly looked back at me and he said, Neil, who's in control? Christ is in control. The next morning, I was out for a run Friday morning and it was early enough that the sun hadn't come up. The stars were out around the park. It was beautiful. And I looked up at the stars and I remember what he said and I thought, yeah, he's right. If Christ can hold all of these balls of gas in their place, the trillions and billions that are up there, and he's able to be in control of the difficulties in my life. He's supreme in control. In verse 18, he's supreme in the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That's interesting, this bit of the song, it feels like Paul's maybe jumping to a different theme here. He's, he's just painted this vision of the cosmic Christ. The Christ who is above all things, who sits above the Carina Nebula, who holds all things together cosmically. And then it feels like he just comes from up there all the way down here to something that feels, in comparison, insignificant. But it's not disconnected. Christ's rule in creation is connected to his rule in the church because his cosmic purposes are being fulfilled through his church. And despite its beauty, as we look at creation, this old creation is passing away as the new creation bursts in to humanity. And at the centre of the new creation is the church. And at the head of the church is Christ. Christ is governing and guiding his church. And Paul uses this metaphor of the body. He uses it, you've come across it before, right? He uses it quite a lot in his letters, that the church is a body. And and I think one of the reasons he does that is to remind us of a sometimes forgotten truth. This, this body, we might feel like we're not because there's so many of us away this afternoon, but this body is alive. 
It's not dead, folks. It's alive. A body has a head and the heart is beaten because the head is alive. We had our members meeting this Wednesday and we were sharing stories of, of healing and growth and salvation and baptism. They're signs of life, folks. The church of Jesus Christ is alive. It is not dead. And the enemies of God cannot stop it. Here's what I know. There are many of us who carry pain and carry baggage from past experience in church. So let me lead you to where Paul leads us in this passage. The cosmic Christ who placed the stars in their position, who is above everything, who holds the planets in their place. He's here. This is his body. He's here for you. Because he is the head of this body, he's not absent in your pain. And he's closer than you know. He's the head of this body. This is his body and he takes responsibility for it. And he sees and he knows and he judges and he cares for his body. Christ is supreme in his church. And finally, verse 18 to 20, he is supreme in salvation. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Whenever Paul talks about death, he's all, always making a, a connection with sin. He's reminded us that the penalty for our sin, our rebellion against God is death. He's reminded us that naturally death owns us. It possesses us. It marks us and it's claimed us as its own. It's reminded us that we have an eternal spiritual problem. But also the gospel tells us that Christ has come to fix it. Note in verse 16 at the top of the passage, we saw the cosmic Christ and we saw how creation was made by him, through him and for him. See that? We get echoes of that same truth at the end of the song here when it comes to Christ's supremacy and our, our salvation. In verse 20, we see that we are reconciled through him. We are reconciled by his blood. And this new work of creation, it isn't, it isn't just for God, it is for us as well. In verse 19 there, we get a vision of the cosmic Christ who now comes and puts on human flesh. He condescends. And just picture that, the Christ who is above the heavens and the earth, the Christ who holds all things together, the Christ who is in control, comes and lives amongst us on this planet, amongst filthy, guilty sinners. He comes and lives amongst us. And God was pleased to dwell amongst us. The Father was pleased to send the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ was pleased to come. As we hear that, we need to see the incarnation wasn't plan B, folks. God was pleased to dwell because Christ came to deal with our sin and with death. And in verse 20, we see that it was on the cross that Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice, a payment for our sin, so that by his blood, peace will be made between us and God. Christ reconciled the people to himself. 
He brought his people to himself. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering Satan, sin and death. Jesus passed through death. You see that in verse 18? He is the firstborn from the dead. He passed through death and he's just the first. Christ has made a way through death and he's just the first. More will follow after him. Christ is supreme over everything, folks. Even (coughs) death. So what are we to do then with this vision of the cosmic, crucified, reigning Christ? But simply to believe this. Christ is enough. He's sufficient. Practically, that looks like believing that his supremacy assures us of his sufficiency. His greatness assures us of his enoughness. So when you face difficulty this week, can I encourage you, look for a vision of Christ's supremacy. That might mean that you do memorize this passage, committed to memory. Maybe you want to make a copy of it and put it in your notes on your phone so that when you hit that struggle, when you're questioning whether Christ is enough in the temptation, in the pain, whatever you're going to face, you can have something that you can go to to remember that he is greater. Copy and paste it, put it in your notes. Maybe you need to learn to default to pray and ask God specifically, just show me the greatness of the sun in this moment instead of defaulting to anxiety. Maybe you can just walk out the door. Depends where you live, to be fair. And look at the beauty of creation. And just ask the Spirit to remind you of the greatness of the Christ who holds it all together. Or perhaps you turn your face towards the empty grave. And as you remember our resurrected Christ, the one who has passed through death, the first fruit of our resurrection, we remember his supremacy. Friends, can I encourage us, don't run to anxiety this week because you can't fix whatever is in front of you. Run to Jesus, who is closer than you know. See his supremacy And as you do, my prayer, my hope for us is that we will be assured of his sufficiency. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that in the face of Christ, we see who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and lived amongst us you are holding all things together that you are high and above everything and that you've condescended and come lived amongst us experienced the struggle of the human life yet without sin we thank you for how in your life you displayed your power and authority over all things over every ruler and dominion and power over death itself We thank you as we look to the cross, we see one who has dealt with our greatest problem. You've reconciled us to the Father. You've made peace between us and the Father. Thank you that, that we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends. We thank you that the reality for all of those who are in you, who are in Christ, we have peace. 
I thank you that that is true for us as we look at our relationship, but it is also true for us in the struggles that we face. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here. As we face struggle now, this afternoon, with whatever it is that we've come in with this afternoon, by the power of your spirit, give us a vision of who you are and give us peace. And as we leave this place later on, help us this week. Help us to learn, help us to to be disciplined, to be people who don't default to anxiety, but instead default to seeing who you are. And as we look to you, that we would be assured that you are enough. And so we thank you for all that you are. Help us now as we worship, as we respond. Help us to believe what we have read, what we have heard. Help your truth to be grounded in our heart. And by your spirit, we pray that you would change us, transform us, change us to be the people that you've created us to be, people who all the more look to you and look like you, for your glory and for your namesake.